You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Revelation chapter 9. It's this chapter where we peer behind the veil of this world and we see what is going on behind in many ways. Of course, Christianity, as I laid out last week, is a supernatural worldview. And what I mean by that is that we do not believe that the physical world is all there is. Of course, we don't. Believing in God, we believe that mind existed before matter. And Christians will come up with these arguments, you know, that the universe had to have a beginning, it had to have a cause, and of course the cause couldn't be physical because physical was created, so therefore a mind existed before that. You'll see Christians arguing for the complexity of design in life, that there had to be a mind behind that. We know that specified complex information only comes from a mind, and these are arguments that apologists have used for the existence of God for many, many years. And these are all pointing to the fact that God exists, and he, is, he calls himself spirit, obviously, and we have him incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the world is different than just what we see in, around us in this physical sense. This idea, like atheists or a hard-nosed naturalist would have, that the physical created matter is all there is, is a fairly new worldview that's appeared on the scene, although it is very dominant these days. But Revelation shatters that view. And as we have been going through this, we've seen some very unusual things going on. Just to remind you, Revelation is the final era of this Earth's history. It is a time when God, throughout the church, all these years have been calling people, to, that they're telling people that the world is broken, that you need to be saved, and that you need to understand what is going to happen to the world. Revelation is telling us this. And it is the final era before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. And there will be those on this earth at that time that are so staunch in their rebellion against Christ that the kingdom cannot actually start this kingdom, like I said, where all weapons of war will be made weapons of peace, where Christ will be ruling, where the righteousness and law will go forth from Jerusalem, that cannot start while there are still people standing in rebellion against him. And as the way I've been phrasing it is that this is the final eviction notice for these people. God will come back and he will get rid of those usurpers who are usurping his kingdom, the earth, this place that he is to have dominion over. He gave it to Adam, Adam handed it over to Satan, and the world has been broken ever since. Christ came, defeated death, and took the power away from Satan. And Satan is a defeated foe, and as we see around us though, there is still havoc, there is still brokenness, there is still death and suffering, but we place our hope in the faith, the one who rose again. This is the central point of Christianity, the one who rose from the dead, defeating death, and therefore took away that power from Satan. And whilst he is still delaying right now, allowing people to come to a knowledge of him to be saved, we know very well that it says there is a time appointed when that will end and he'll have to come back and remove those who are not going to be in his kingdom. And this is what Revelation is dealing with. It's really deep stuff, it's really dramatic stuff. And last week we looked at chapter 9. And like I said, this is an unusual chapter where we saw behind the veil into the spiritual realm, we get this view, and we're talking about the angelic realm at this point. And we did the first half of the chapter, we're going to finish off that chapter and then move in to chapter 10 today. You may have heard, even in popular culture, of the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments that are all part of the book of Revelation. That's where it comes from. We are looking at the fifth trumpet judgment in chapter 9, and that's what we saw last week. And it spoke about this very unusual group of angels that were confined by the Lord in this place called the Abyss, and they were saved and put under chains, basically, until a future time, this time in Revelation. And then in Revelation 
chapter 9, the second half we're going to look at now. So let's turn to Revelation 9, verse 13. It says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now, there's a lot in these texts, but let me try and just make a bit of sense to you. Remember we talked about the, the four horns of the altar, that I said that all through the Old Testament we see this tabernacle, don't we? This temple that they had in Jerusalem. You can still go to Israel today and see the Temple Mount, which is where this temple used to be built. And You might not know, I, I've mentioned it before, but that temple was built according to very specific specifications that we find laid out in the Bible. And we learn from the New Testament that the temple and the tabernacle that were made on earth were simply a copy of what God had in the heavens. And of course, the Holy of Holies, so in the temple you had that place, didn't you, where the Ark of the Covenant was, right at the centre of the Holy of Holies, that is a copy of what we've been studying in Revelation, the throne room of God. That was where God dwelt. Up in heaven it was the throne room. And then outside you had this altar of incense, which was where incense was burnt, and we, this is what it's referring to here, and we saw that also in heaven. Now one thing that's interesting, if you read the Old Testament, many times you'll find a little narrative when someone is doing something wrong, they would run to the horns of the altar. These big altars, they had these four horns on either side, and they would cling to the horns of the altar, and it was a sign of mercy. That was how, and they would plead, they would have mercy by clinging to the horns of the altar. I find it interesting that these horns are mentioned here, because, like I said, there is a day when the mercy seems to stop. And that is this final period of history that we're dealing with in Revelation. Those who continually refuse, those who reject, are given over in their rejection. And God says, fine, you want a world without me, I'll give you a world without me. And it doesn't last for long, and it's a very quick succession, seven years in fact, and we're into the last three and a half of those years in this book. But that is basically what we see going on here. So the four horns of the golden altar, that's what we have. Now, we're going to witness the release of another group of what are just told to us as bound angels. We do not really know anything about them. They're obviously very dangerous. We see that they, they're obviously rebellious angels. They like, they're dangerous. They're, they're going to come out and kill a lot of mankind. And we know angels have, they are, you know, created beings in that sense, but they are obviously very different to us. They're supernatural. If you remember the story in Two Kings, when the Assyrian army was destroyed by one angel. And if you read the historical records of that event that we have quite a few of, they don't obviously mention an angel. Whether, the, whether you could see the angel or not, or you just saw the armies dying, it's a very strange, abrupt end to the Assyrian takeover and empire. It just basically says they got to Jerusalem, and then that's the last we hear of it, and they went back home obviously from reading the biblical narrative. You remember Hezekiah, he prayed, didn't he? When he was bound up, the Assyrian army was around Jerusalem, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord sent the angel, and the Assyrian army was gone. And that's the last we hear of that. It's very fascinating. But this is what we have going on here. These four angels that, for some reason, are bound, and now they are released at the great Euphrates. And again, that's the Euphrates River, it's mentioned quite a lot in the Bible, the Euphrates River. It's mentioned a lot outside of the Bible in ancient Near Eastern documents, and it's a, it's a very important place. We'll see it a few times more in Revelation. And just thinking a little bit about this, it was really where the first cradle of civilization began, the Fertile Crescent, as they call it. 
and it's also a focus in the end. It was on the banks of the Euphrates that the ancient city of Babylon stood, where King Nebuchadnezzar, the famous person we read about in the Bible, played a major portion of the biblical narrative. As we get to the end of Revelation, we're going to see Babylon, kind of a rack area today, make a big comeback, and they will be a very significant player too. It was near the Euphrates that sin first entered this world. Most People believe it's in the Fertile Crescent somewhere where all these things first happened. The first lie was told, the first murder was committed, the Tower of Babel was built, and from that the entire false religious system that we have that is spread across the world today and is still very, very prevalent in many parts of the world. We see these things released, and they are given permission to kill a third of mankind. And I want you to remember, this is already after the destruction that we've seen. We've seen all the destruction of much of the inhabited world at this time is gone. Like, so this is not like we look around our world today and we see odd things happening all over the place. We see war. The world is not like it is now. Do you remember this? We've been through such a series of judgments. The world is getting smaller and smaller. Grass, fish, trees, all these things are being destroyed. And it's pushing everything to the centre. Well, when I say the centre, I mean this area, the Fertile Crescent, where it all begun again. And it will ultimately end up in Jerusalem again. That's why Jerusalem is such a city of conflict. There's a lot of... What we see happening in the physical is quite often there is something going on in the spiritual behind it. Do you remember we talked about the, the, the prince of Persia? It calls about in the Bible. This demonic person that was in charge of that area. And we see and we can trace all these wars and things around that region. And all these things are happening. It's very hard for us to really understand how. But this is what the Lord tells us. And he gives us a glimpse of these things in this time. So it was here in the Euphrates that these angels were bound and they, were, they are now being released with this trumpet judgment. And you think about a third of mankind. Remember, population is probably already half what it is today in by modern terms. So this is end game, really, we could say. This is, right, this is right near the end of history. Do you remember Jesus' words? He says, Then there shall be a great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor no shall it ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect saved, those days were shortened. This, it's such a serious time it, that if the Lord didn't cut those days short, all flesh would be destroyed. Look at verse 16. Then the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard a number of them. And this is how I saw the, in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the colour of fire, of hyacinth, brimstone, and the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. And a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and they have heads, and with them they do harm. Now, of course, that's, remember, the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book. So the genre of literature is you get these sort of similes that are trying to describe things that we really have no comprehension of knowing. So the best that the authors seem to do is they use these animals. They use different animals to try and describe what they're seeing. And this is, again, we saw that in the previous chapter. We see that again here. It says there are 200 million of them in your Bible. The actual Greek says two myriads of myriads. I think the idea is supposed to be there's such a large number, two myriads of myriads, that you can't really count it, or John being there, he can't really imagine counting a number like that. Now, this is a point where, if you're familiar, like I did in the introduction to this book, many people try and avoid the book of Revelation because there are obviously, you can go on YouTube and watch very fanciful interpretations and people get into date setting, people go down all these ridiculous paths. And this is one area where I believe people sort of go off track a little bit 
and they, they see the 200 million, they see the horsemen, and they see the Euphrates, and they put all these things together, and they think, right, well, Euphrates is over that way, and we'll meet some characters later on in the book called the Kings of the East. That's different to this, but most people actually put these things together, and that's wrong. And they think, right, so who, who from the East can raise an army of 200 million? And then, of course, they think, well, China's really the only possibility of people that have that many foot soldiers that, that can do that. And then they say, well, this is, this is China. And then they say that all these look like these horses and these different animal descriptions. They say that's just him trying to describe modern military warfare. And that's what people will put up, like a picture of like a Cobra helicopter or an Apache and stuff like that. And whilst these things are sometimes quite interesting, I think that's not the way that the text is really pushing us to go here. If we remember this chapter's with what we studied last week, it's a continuation. There's no chapter break. We just stopped because that's as much as we could do in one morning. But this is clearly talking about supernatural things. What the, it's not really, I don't believe, at this stage, dealing with physical armies and physical soldiers. Usually in the Bible, when you see these descriptions of, of things that are like animals, they're talking about supernatural beings and not actual modern-day warfare. So we'll, we'll touch on that as we... As we get through this book because we will see proper warfare going on through this book but I don't want to speculate I don't think that's the right way to do it what I see here is a terrifying description of spiritual beings being allowed to wreak havoc on the earth they're fallen angels this is a time in history where we are dealing with people who are called earth dwellers who are those who are so entrenched in their rejection of God that they would actually rather worship this character that we looked at called the beast this political leader who will rise to power, who will unite the nations, who will take over those who don't follow him. His popular name was the Antichrist. I've described, I don't like that name, but that's what he will do. And he will be a wonderful speaker, wonderful orator. But then once he gains power, he'll show his true colours and he'll actually end up being one of the worst dictators ever. This is what is happening all throughout this time. And those people who do not follow the Lord, it says, will follow him because he'll come and he'll probably have good answers to some of the world's problems. He'll unite everything. We see the push for globalism, don't we? We see the push for all these different things moving that we've talked about and we will talk about again as we go through this book more. All right, let's look at verse 20, please. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold, of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see, hear, nor walk. Now, again, remember, this is the final judgment in the final days preceding the coming kingdom. The coming kingdom is really where God has been trying to get this world to the whole time. That's the journey he has. Those being judged are those who are rebelling against him and therefore cannot enter that kingdom. And it says here that they, will, they won't repent, they won't stop worshipping demons, idols and all these things. Now, many of us in the Western world, civilised Western world, we, look at, we read something like that and we scoff. There's no way the world is going to go back to ancient religious practices like worshipping idols and demons in that literal sense that it seems to suggest there. And in response to that, I think as we actually think about that, I'm not sure if that's entirely true. That might, we might think like that in our world, but we, we come from a very privileged position. When God is removed, really, and you can study history and look at this, the depravity of man becomes very, very clear. We see this in things like war. When God is removed from the, from the situation, there's no depth to which mankind will stoop. We could give you many, many, many historical examples of things like that. It's because men has forgotten God. 
so as Solzhenitsyn said, isn't it, when the Russian Revolution happened all those years ago, he says, this is happening because men have forgotten God. And that is really true throughout most wars in these kind of things. They often replace it with something else. We look at this from our privileged Western civilization that's really founded upon 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian values where things like idols and those things have been mainly pushed out of society, particularly in a very secular context today. However, that's a privilege that we have. Although we've rejected the actual foundations of that worldview, we are still living on the inertia of that worldview. Many of the things we have, like these things we lift up like human rights, those things are unheard of in, in other parts of the world and in the ancient world particularly, to the degree that we have them today, but they actually came from God, from Genesis 2, from the, the idea that people were created in the image of God. Now, those things have been jettisoned, and we are still living on that scaffold, but it really can't support itself without the weight. This is all gone at this point. So in this point in history, this final years that Revelation is dealing with, the church is gone, restra all these sorts of things are gone. There's no restraining from the Holy Spirit. Evil has its full force. Man, mankind, rejection of God will come to the front. You just have to look around the world today to the cultures in this world today that do not have those 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian influence. They still worship things like this. I can take you to many temples where you can see idols, you can see statues, you can see totem poles. I've been into many houses in this country with different religions and seen idol tables and you have to burn a candle to this and this. All these different things. It still happens today. Mankind is incurably religious. That's what we always say. Mankind is because we were made to have that spiritual component to be in relationship with God. But when Adam sinned, that was broken and we were born out of relationship with God. This is why Jesus says you must be born again. That's the whole point of the gospel, to reconnect us to the Lord. But if we are unwilling to do that, many people fill that vacuum with other things. And Satan is right there to offer many different false religions to do that. This is... In, and you think that's true today, it is true today, but imagine what that is like in this period of history, these final years, that is what is going on here. And in fact, as we will learn, there is an entire false religious system set up during this final years of history around this man called the Antichrist, and he will have people who will force allegiance to him at this time. And again, we see that in mini miniature around the world today, People were forced to worship the Roman empires as gods. People are forced to worship various communist leaders as gods. It happens. And if you don't, then you get your benefits taken away, you get your food taken away, you get your livelihood taken away, your places of worship are taken away. It happens today to a small degree because there's still restraint on the earth. But this is a period of time where there will be no restraint and there will be no one else to challenge this man. And that is what will happen. And the only thing that will challenge him is when the Lord comes back. And it's not a fight for the Lord. The Lord comes back, he simply opens his mouth, and this man is defeated. That is it. This is the final era of history. It's a very dramatic time. So we see another strong angel coming down. Let's move into verse 10. Let's just go straight into verse 10. That is the end of verse 7. So really, at the end of chapter 9, we're in the midpoint of the tribulation here. Sorry, chapter 9. The end point of chapter 9 now. We've seen the seals. We've seen most of the trumpets. And we're going to do just two more trumpet judgments. But chapter 10, remember I said you get these chapters that are like intervals. So generally it's chronological, and occasionally you have these interval chapters where John gives us different details. Chapter 10 is a little interval chapter. Uh, it's very unusual, but it's quite amazing when you get into it. So let's just do it. We'll try and do the whole thing. We'll see how we do. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head. And his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left hand on the land and he cried out with a loud voice 
as when a lion roars, and when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. So we see that another strong angel giving us a clue that this is an angel that is not rebellious, this is an angel working for the Lord, very much like the one we saw came down and sealed those Jewish believers earlier in the book. He has a very different description. We can tell from the fact that we see this rainbow described and these, these descriptions that are almost the same as what we read about Jesus. He's obviously an angel of very high rank and authority at this time. And he comes down and he has a little book in his hand, a little book that was open, it says. The Greek is a term for a small book, different to the sealed scroll that we saw originally from the Lord. And when he arrives down on earth, John is seeing this in a vision, obviously. He's so large that one foot is on the earth, one foot is in the sea. And he cries out and you have this loud voice. It's like a roar of a lion. If you've ever heard a lion roar, they're pretty impressive when they actually do a proper roar. That's the sort of sound that we're, you imagine the drama that this is building to. And then in return, these seven voices utter like thunder, re reply to him. Let's look at verse 4. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. And then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven, who created heaven and the things in it, the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets." So again, very unusual scene, but John is about to write what he heard and then he is suddenly commanded, no, don't record that. It's almost like he was privy to an angel-to-angel -angel conversation himself, but he was not allowed to actually tell us what was transpiring there. And then we see this angel lift his right hand and swear an oath to heaven that there will be no more delay. And at this point we need to ask our question, what a delay of what? That's the question that we, we really need to look at here. What is this delay that he's talking about? I'll come back to that. And then it says, in, the voice, in those days, the voice of the seventh angel, who has the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God will be finished. So the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet judgment, which has the seven bowl judgments, after all that, we're done. God is returned to this earth. History has ended as far as we know it in this era. That is this final point of history. It's all finished. In Revelation 16, 17, we actually see that. It says, when the seventh angel poured out the last bowl, a loud voice came from the temple in heaven saying, it is done. That's it. The wrath of God is finished. The kingdom can begin. So again, it's a very unusual scene. And of course, if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's even more unusual. As I keep saying, the book of Revelation is, people don't understand it because most of it comes from the Old Testament. It's drawing on these, these Old Testament passages. That's exactly what this little scene is doing here. We have to go to a particular book called the book of Daniel, to understand this bit. And I'll show you what's going on here. We've already spent two weeks in Daniel. Do you remember we studied Daniel's 70th week prophecies? That's, again, about this book. If you turn to Daniel chapter 12, I'll show you, try and show you what is going on here. I believe Daniel chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 10, we get this same angelic being, and we're seeing two halves to the same conversation. And I know that because the imagery is similar, the language is similar, and the chronology is very similar. And it's the background to this text. So Daniel chapter 12, we'll read nine verses here because it's, again, it's very important to the context. So stay with me. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, At that time, 
Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. See how similar that is to Jesus' words. There will, there will be a time of great tribulation since like there has never been. That's where Jesus is getting it from. It says, But at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. I want you to notice that little word there. Daniel was told to roll up what he had been given as a prophecy, and it was sealed until the time of the end. Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood before me two others, one of them on the bank of the river, and the other on the opposite bank. And one of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these things are fulfilled? These prophecies of the end times. The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a times. It's an old way of saying three and a half years. When the power of the holy people has finally been broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand, so I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? And he replied, Go your way, Daniel, because these words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. So back in Daniel's day, so this is like 500 BC, he's given this prophecy that's dealing with the final era of history. We know that because of all the references in the previous, in the book of Daniel. And he sees this, this angel who's got people on the bank and on the river, and he writes the scroll and he's told to seal it up until the time of the end. That is this time that we're dealing with in the book of Revelation, this time where of great distress such as has never been, nor never will be again. The same as Jesus said, we call this the final half of the tribulation, three and a half years. That's where I keep getting this reference to three and a half years from. You see it many times, a time, times and a half. Sometimes it's given in months, sometimes it's given in years. It's all the same period of history it's referring to. The similarities in this story. Daniel's man in linen hovers above the water and he has messengers with him on either side. John's great angel descends over the water and he has one foot on the earth and one on the water. John hears a voice that the angel must seal this up for a time. Daniel heard a voice that he must seal this up for a time. Now it seems in both instances that this angel was given permission to tell what would happen in the end, basically, to, to tell how things would be wrapped up, specifically this time period we're studying in Revelation. So Daniel is told to prepare a scroll with the prophecy on it, and he said that there's going to be a delay, basically, after that. You seal it up, it's a delay. And Daniel says, well, what does this mean? I don't know what this means. And he says, it's not for you to know now. Seal it up until the time of the end. So that's what happened back in Daniel's day with this angel. So now we move into Revelation 10 that we've just read, and we're seeing the end of the age, and we see this angel come back again. And this is the connection. We must ask ourselves, what happened to that scroll that Daniel sealed up with that prophecy on? This is the important thing to notice. And it's, you have to be, it's a subtle reference, but notice it. I would argue that the angel took that scroll because it was sealed up, it was not allowed to be given to anyone. And now we see him coming in Revelation chapter 10 and he's giving that scroll to John. And John is now the one who gives us the book of Revelation, this end times prophecy here. And that's what he's doing. And we get a clue from this in the text because if you read it in Daniel, you notice this angel always swears, to the, swears an oath to the Lord before he speaks his word. And it says he lifted his left hand and his right hand to, to swear. 
And a very unusual detail is in the Revelation chapter, it changes that slightly. And it says, he lifts his right hand to swear an oath. And the implication is that his left hand is obviously doing something at this time. And he doesn't do it like he used to. And the idea is he's got the scroll in his left hand at this time. And that is what he then gives to John. And we see that. And that's basically why John has these end times prophecies. So let's just, we'll just finish this chapter quickly. 8 to 11, please. Then the voice which I heard from, from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book and he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was as sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. He's told to take the book and eat it. Again, sounds very unusual to us. It's nothing unusual in the Bible. We see this imagery being used the whole time. Eating the word is basically trying to, it's a way of describing that you trust the word, that you accept the word, that you meditate upon the word. That Basically, you've heard the expression, you are what you eat. If you're a believer, you will eat the word of God, you'll obey the word of God, you'll love the word of God, and you'll live it out in your lives. That's the idea. It's, it's talking about someone who accepts the word of God. And it's, again, not new to Revelation. It's actually from the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, it says this, Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go and speak to the house of Israel. So what he's basically saying is, take my words as a prophet, and then go and speak them to the house of Israel. And it says, so I opened my mouth, he fed me the scroll, and he said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. So very similar language there. That again is where Revelation is getting it from. The joyful sweetness to the believer of prophecy. When we study prophecy, it can be very sweet. It's kind of exciting. It gives us that expectation that the Lord is coming soon. But then when you take it into your stomach and you actually deal with what it's saying, Unfortunately, this is going to bring judgment too for those who reject God. The time of mercy, the time of gospel giving is going to come to an end. That is a very bitter feeling. So it's sweetness and bitter at the same time. So we see that. Let me read you another passage, Jeremiah 15. Very similar concept. Your words were found and I ate them. So this concept of eating the word again. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So there's the sweetness. He ate the word of God and it was sweet. And then he goes on. I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult, because your hand upon me sat alone, for you filled me with indignation. So you see, once you hear the word of God, you are responsible for what you do with the word of God. And ultimately for Jeremiah here, it meant when he heard the word of God, he was living in apostate Israel at this time, and he, judgment was coming to them very soon. As he was looking around and all of his friends were doing what he was doing, they would go back to the Old Testament and figure out what that history is the circle of merrymakers, he calls them, he could not be a part of that now because he had the word of God. And he was the one actually commissioned to bring judgment. So it was sweet to him, but there was also that bitter element to it too. This is what eating the word of God means, okay? Believing and trusting the word of God. Now let me show you one more amazing thing to how this plays into a New Testament passage, slightly unrelated to Revelation, but it's just interesting. So eating the word, having faith in the word, accepting the word, trusting the word, assimilating it into your body and your life. In John chapter 6, we get a very unusual passage, which has just been butchered by interpretation over the years. Let me read it to you. You'll, un you'll probably recognize it. Then the Jews began to argue with one another. This is the time of Jesus. 
How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is Jesus they're talking about. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, this is a very Jewish piece of writing that Jesus says here. What has happened historically is the church has come to this and they've read it and they've thought, oh, it must be talking about like communion or the Eucharist. And the Catholics came up with transubstantiation, that, that belief that they think it actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. This is where they get that from. Um, wars have been fought over this. There's been much division over it. It all comes from a misunderstanding of the Jewish background here. Jesus is actually making a very sophisticated Jewish argument that he is God. How? Track this with me here. Eating the word of God, remember, having faith in the word. Now Jesus is now saying to them, you eat the word, you trust faith, and now he's saying you eat my flesh. What's his point behind that? Is that he is the word become flesh. That's what the incarnation is, the word became flesh. So when he says, eat my flesh, he's saying just what the Old Testament prophets used to say, eat my word. But he wants them to figure out that he is now the word become flesh. It's a, like, it's a real simple but Jewish argument for the deity of God, and the church has just gone way off beam on that in some areas. But that's a slight aside there. That's what Jesus is basically saying. But we have here John now being told to eat the word of God in this little scroll in Revelation. That's the point that he's looking at. And as we just stop for a moment and think about this, we can all ask ourselves today, are, are we eating the word of God? Like so many times you'll notice the word of God is described as food, isn't it? Honey to my lips, the bread of life, or the word of God, milk, meat. All these things are said to be of the word of God. And we need to ask ourselves, are we eating it? Are we living it out? One of the biggest things that multiple studies suggest that the biggest problem in the church is that we're becoming more biblically illiterate every year. And therefore the message we communicate is not the message that Jesus commanded us to communicate. And the way that happens, it's, it's sort of, it's weird because we have access to more, better scholarship, more resources than probably any time in history. But I think it works the same principle as food. If you go to a part of the world today where you know, they don't have the luxury of three meals a day, you put food in front of someone, it doesn't really matter what it is, they'll eat it. You know, it's their life, it's their sustenance, they don't know when the next meal will be. But for us, where it's a luxury, if you put something in front of us, we don't like it, we should be like, well, eat that, send it back. And we don't have that same desire in that sense. Now, don't get me wrong, I love food, but you see, you see my point that I'm getting at there. The availability has actually dampened the fact that we don't actually appreciate what it is so much. You know, we go back into history a little bit where people didn't have the word of God and, you know, people were dying for it. People were walking seven hours to get to a church where someone would read the word of God. And most of our history is found in England anyway, is founded upon making sure people had the word of God to read. This is a big part of our history here. But whereas now you can just read it all over the place on your phone or you've got more Bibles, but yet we're, we, we know less about it than we ever did. And this is the issue that's going on here. So as we see John eating the word of God here, as we see the prophets eating the word of God, the church must be like that too. We must eat and feed on the word of God for our sustenance and we will live that out as we do that. That's the word of God. Let me just read verse 11 and then we'll close. They said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, tongues and kings. And what we see now is John has eaten the word of God and he's told now to prophesy about what is happening in this final era of history. The next four or five chapters of Revelation deal with some really interesting stuff. We're going to look at governments, we're going to look at economics, we're going to look at all these sorts of things that we see happening and it's quite fascinating. But that, 
is basically what Daniel was told that was sealed, was then given to John, and is now given to us that we see. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.